Would you renew a deal with a company when they unfairly broke their prior contract with you? Would you trust your friend again when they have betrayed their promise to you? Would you take back your spouse when they have broken your marriage covenant by committing adultery? You know, many of us will hesitate to make another commitment. What's the saying? Once bitten, twice shy. We will not want to give them another chance, lest they break faith with us again, as they have proven themselves not to be trusted. God's people, Israel, in their worship of the golden calf, has broken faith with their Lord God. They have committed spiritual adultery. Yet in Exodus 34, God forgives them and remakes a covenant with them. To use the marriage metaphor, God, as the cockled husband, takes back his unfaithful wife who has just committed adultery. God renews his covenant promises and remains present with his people in Exodus 34. And he calls them to be faithful and to worship him alone. So the big idea of Exodus 34 is this. God renews his promises, is present with his people and calls them to worship him alone. And the outline for today's passage is in three parts. God gracious, gracious promises we made verses 1 to 9. Worship God alone, the middle part of this uh, passage. And God is present with his people, uh, verses 29 to 35. Exodus 32 to 34, which we'll be covering in the past, uh, this past three weeks, forms a story unit. So we need to recall what happened to understand the significance of chapter 34 fully. Recall that Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and nights. In Moses' absence, the people of Israel, they grew impatient and fearful. They made a golden calf and they worshipped it. We see this in Exodus 32. In doing so, they committed idolatry. They had broken the first three of the Ten Commandments. The fact that they recently said in response to God's instructions, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do, in Exodus 19 and 24, makes this act of spiritual adultery even more reprehensible. Israel's idolatry with the golden calf fragrantly breaks their covenant with God. They had gone back on their promises to do as God instructed, as part of their covenantal responsibilities. God has bring judgment on them as a consequence of their foolishness and sin. But we see Moses interceding and praying on Israel's behalf, and God turned away from his wrath. In Exodus 33, God spared Israel, but said that he will not go into the land of promise with his people. But Moses pleaded for God to be present with his people. So what will God do next? You know, I, I know what I will humanly do. You know, I may not take further action against someone who is sorry, but I will part ways with the, with the person who betrayed me. I will just walk away. But God, God is gracious, and He did not walk away from His people. God's gracious promises are remade. God surprisingly reinstates his, the covenant and promises His presence with Israel in Exodus 34, verse 1 to 9. Follow me in your Bibles on page 69 
as I read the first four verses for us. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The beginning of chapter 34 reinforces that God graciously re-establishes his covenant, his, the covenant between him and Israel after the golden calf incident. Once again, Moses will have tablets of stone with the words of God's law written on them. You know, remember, the covenant was nearly invalidated with the breaking of the first set of tablets during Israel's idolatry. It is now uh, reinstated. The only difference between these tablets and those mentioned is that Moses must cut them out. The, uh, the other set of tablets seem to be given to Moses by God. The tablets were copies. They were representative of the Susan Tea Treaty between God and Israel to be deposited in the Ark of the Covenant. In any event, Moses is again reminded to travel up the mountain to receive God's law. And this reminds us of his first trip, which began in Exodus 20, verse 21. As in Exodus 19, and all, all others, even animals, are to keep their distance from the mountain. We see here that Moses' second receiving of the law is patterned after the first. And this pattern reinforces that the holy God is again remaking his promises with his people. God is not hesitant to forgive, nor does God simply walk away. Beloved, has the guilt of your sin lay heavy on your heart? Has it delayed your approaching God? Do not delay. Go to God and ask for forgiveness. God is merciful and He will welcome and forgive you. We see these perils with previous chapters continue in verses 5 to 7. The Lord God descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses ascends, and the cloud again comes down to where he is. God graciously condescends to come down. The name of God, Yahweh, is proclaimed, and Moses witnesses the glory presence of God. In Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7, we see in these verses the resolution of the golden calf episode. Because if we recall, uh, God said that He will do something, he, that He will actually come down uh, and, and proclaim His name to Moses in Exodus 33, verses 19 to 23. So these verses here, 
actually fulfill what God said he would do. God said that he will make all his goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. God said that he will pass in front of Moses, proclaim his name, and speak about mercy and compassion. And here, Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7, God proclaims his name. He repeats the divine name Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, twice. Remember Exodus 3, when the Lord, all caps in your Bible, uh, is mentioned, it represents the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is God's covenant name. A name that promises God's presence in a saving relationship with His people. God will be with His people. God's saving presence with His people is what He will once again commit Himself to do for Israel. Even after the events of chapter 32. Isn't this amazing? Especially in the light of his people's recent spurning of him in committing adultery. Moreover, the Lord is God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now, there's this list of attributes given here that God proclaims of his own goodness. And this is true not only of God's action in, Exodus, in chapter 34, but throughout the whole of Exodus. God has brought Israel out of Egypt in the first place. Not because Israel deserved it, but because God is gracious. The same gracious mercy is now kindled anew towards His people after the golden calf incident. In the light of this uh, rebellion by His people, it, it just highlights God's goodness. And God emphatically states that He is patient and willing to forgive His people. Now, as a commentator writes in his excellent uh, uh, comment on this passage, the Lord is changelessly faithful to His purposes, irresistibly set upon what He has of Himself determined to do. It was not for any goodness in them that He chose Israel in Egypt. And here, their lack of goodness did not make Him change His mind. From beginning to end, God loves us simply because He loves us. And the love which brought us out, out of Egypt, out of slavery, will bring us in to the promised land. But forgiveness does not mean overlooking their sin, nor will He leave the guilty unpunished. In fact, under the penalty for breaking the second commandment in Exodus 25, idolatry requires requires the penalty be extended to the third and fourth generation. This obedience has far-reaching implications for Israel's life as God's covenant people. If they disobey, the effects will be felt for a long time. This mystery of how God can forgive wickedness, rebellion and sin, and at the same time, not let anybody off, meaning making sure that the guilty get what they deserve. You realise as you read the Old Testament, it kind of not really got resolved in the Old Testament. The resolution comes, and we see in God's Word, the glorious resolution comes in the coming of Jesus Christ, when we learn that God is angry at sin, but also merciful. Paul writes in Romans 3.26, so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God demands patience.
payment for sin. But God also provides the payment for sin. Jesus' death on the cross satisfies God's justice and His love, holiness, and compassion. His righteous standard of holiness and showering of loving kindness. My non-Christian friends, if you want to know God's goodness and presence, I urge you to come to the cross of Christ where mercy and justice meets. There is no wickedness, rebellion or sin that God will not pardon. Acknowledge your sins, believe that Christ paid for your sins and confess that you need Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. If this is your desire, speak to your Christian friends who invited you to this service or you can speak to or email any of the elders. We'll be happy to have coffee with you and discuss the gospel of Jesus Christ. What about us, beloved? I encourage us to be clear on the gospel. Study and meditate on the cross of Christ to deeply etch this gospel, this, this what uh, God has done for us in Christ Jesus at the cross, etch that into our inner selves. And a good book to read on this is The Cross of Christ by John Stock. You know, we continue in verses 8 to 9 and we see Moses' response. And it seems a bit strange. You know, Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I found favour in your sight, O Lord, please let the, the Lord go in the midst of us. For it's a stiff-necked, meaning stubborn people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for inheritance. You know, Moses here seems to be praying to God and petitioning God for what God has just granted. Now, after all, the word of forgiveness that God mentioned in the verses above implied that uh, God will continue with His original plan to bring Israel not only out of Egypt, but into the land of promise. So, is, is are Moses' words here kind of extra? Not at all. Beloved, we often ask God for the same things over and over again in our prayers, including the things He promised to give. Moses has learned to pray within the promises of God. You know, God has promised to be present, so Moses prayed that he would go with them. God has promised to forgive wickedness and rebellion, so Moses asked God to pardon Israel's sin. God has promised to take Israel as his treasured possession, so Moses asked him to make his people, the people, his inheritance. The prophet Moses took God's promises as well as what God revealed about his character and made this the basis for his prayers. And beloved, God invites us to pray the same way Moses prayed. We ought to pray based on God's gracious promises and glorious character. For example, God has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. So we pray, Lord Jesus, I know that you will stay with me even as I enter this difficult situation. I pray that you will go with me by the power of your Spirit. So what was God's response to Moses' prayer? God is pleased to renew his covenant with Israel. And we read this in Exodus 34 verse 10. And he, meaning God, said, Behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth and in any nation, and all the people among whom you shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. God responds to Moses' persistent prayer 
by giving him what he asks, he will make a covenant. He will renew his promise, a stunning blend of love and responsibility with the people. To put it more accurately, God will renew the covenant broken by the unfaithfulness of Israel. And not only that, God promises to do amazing and awesome things with God's people so that the watching world will see God's work and glory displayed. And what follows in the verses in the middle part of verses 11 to 28, we see here is essentially a repetition of several things we have seen before uh, in the previous section of Exodus. Uh, we, we see it in the Passover section. Uh, we see this uh, uh, mentioned first in the Ten Commandments. And we see this uh, uh, that was first uh, spoke about by Moses in the Book of the Covenant. So uh, follow with me as I read for us Exodus 34, verse 11. And you see the repetition that is made there. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hittite, Hivites, and Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down your altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land when they haul after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons. <clears throat> and their daughters haul after the gods and make your sons Call after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall see, eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. At the time appointed in the month Abib, for in the month Abib you have come out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its name. All the firstborns of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In ploughing time, in harvest, you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruit of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingaring at the year's end. Three times in a year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall cover your land. When you go up to appear before your Lord God three times in a year, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything, anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil the young goats in his mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. Moses ate neither bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. This repetition of the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant helps the original audience you need to remember the original audience. They were the second generation of the nation of Israel who left Egypt. They were now in the wilderness, just beyond the Jordan River, and they were about to enter the land of promise, as seen in the book of Deuteronomy. 
It helps this generation, this, this original audience, to understand what is happening in Exodus 34 as covenant renewal. The repetition of the laws in verses 10 to 28, including references to the Exodus and the conquest and the command to Moses to write, is the summary of the main events of Exodus as a whole. In renewing the covenant with his people, the substance of the original covenant is repeated and reiterated. So God's message is clear. Despite Israel's sin, God is still moving forward with His plan. God's plan in Exodus uh, chapter 19, verse 5 to 6, that Israel will be God's treasured possession among all peoples, and to God a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God says that this will be accomplished, despite Israel's failing. However, this covenant that is renewed with God's people also demanded a response. At the same time, God was taking the Israelites to be His people. The Israelites need to take God as their God. It was a mutual relationship. And by its very nature, this relationship was meant to be exclusive. The Israelites needed to turn away from every other deity to have God alone as their God. They needed to worship God and Him alone. And God knew how hard this would be for them, especially in the light of their reason breaking of faith with God in Exodus 32 by worshipping the golden calf. So verse 11 and following basically summarizes the book of the covenant which we see in Exodus 20, 23 and repeats the instructions that focus mainly on Israel's worship obligations. God again reminds them and instructs them on how to worship Him. God warns the Israelites against adopting the worship practices of the other nations around them unless they fall again into idolatry. This command emphasizes Israel's covenant obligation to worship the Lord alone as God instructs. And grounding their worship of God alone is verse 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. You know, when I read this, I was a bit puzzled. What does this mean to say that God is jealous? And I'm grateful to Philip Reichert's insight in his Exodus commentary, which helped in my understanding. You know, we usually think of jealousy as spiteful envy. So when we say someone is jealous, we usually think that it's a bad thing, right? So how can such attitude be worthy of God? The answer is that there's more than one kind of jealousy. Of course, jealousy can be sinful, and with hu sinful human beings, it usually is, you know, we are envious, we are spiteful. You know, the Oxford English Dictionary defines jealous as afraid, suspicious, or resentful of rivalry in love. But the primary definition of the word is fiercely protective. And although God is neither suspicious nor resentful, God is certainly protective, especially regarding His relationship with His people. God, God guards nothing more jealously than His love for us and our love for Him in the covenant. When God told Moses that His name is jealous, He meant that He demands from those whom He loves uh, and redeem utter and absolute loyalty and will vindicate His claim by stern action against them if they betray his love by unfaithfulness. 
You know, perhaps it's the best way to understand God's proper jealousy is to consider marriage. Even in marriage, sinful, uh, jealousy can be sinful. You know, you're, you're envious and spiteful towards your spouse because you're jealous. But there's also a righteous jealousy that nourishes the passion of marriage. By its very nature, marriage is an exclusive love relationship and requires the right kind of jealousy. Indeed, it's impossible to have a godly marriage without it. Jealousy is what makes a wife fiercely protective of her husband's reputation. It is what draws a husband to set aside time uh, and to focus her, uh, his affection only for his wife. And it is what banishes the thought of ever ending up in another woman or man's arms. Our holy God is jealous for devotion and worship. Beloved, as we draw near repentance and obedience to worship God alone, how are we to do that? We worship God in Christ. So even as we look at these passages, we realize that God, uh, Christ fulfills the sacrificial system. It's Jesus Christ sacrificed on the, on the cross and His blood that cleanses us from our sins once and for all. So we do not have to offer blood sacrifices continually. We see also that Jesus fulfills all the festivals. The Passover, Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. The feast of the unleavened bread, Jesus is the sinless bread of life that brings us life. The feast of weeks of Pentecost, Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit for both Jew and Gentile who will be brought into the kingdom of God during the church age. So we worship God in Christ. We repent of our sins and go to Christ in obedience of faith. Worshipping God in Christ means our worship songs ought to be Christ-centered. When we gather to worship, we sing of the truth, the beauty, the goodness of Christ. In our hymns and songs, we do that. When we assemble to worship, we hear about the preaching of Jesus Christ. We remember Jesus Christ when we observe the Lord's Supper and Baptism. Remember, we heard our members, uh, new members' testimony. They all spoke of the glories of Christ who saved them. When we get into our small groups, we study our, the Bible in the light of Christ. We read books together. We talk about Christ. So, beloved, never lose your awe of Jesus Christ. And as you are, uh, remain in awe of Christ, you worship Him. It also means that we worship Christ alone in every area of our lives. We esteem Christ above every other false gods our culture offers us. Remember, idols can also be good things that replace our worship of Christ. We remain on guard against the idols of overemphasizing, over uh, um, um, focusing on relationships, uh, the approval of others, our careers, and even our children. We do not let comfort in our lifestyle or retirement replace our devotion to Christ. Beloved, ask yourself often, how am I devoted to worshipping God alone in response to God's grace to me in Jesus Christ? Israel is to covenant with God and worship Him alone. But how can the people be sure that God is with them? After all, it was their doubts about Moses and questions about God's presence that led them to idolatry with the golden calf in Exodus 32. 
And, and we see God's presence with His people displayed in verses 29 to 35. We see that God is present with His people. So follow with me as we read the remaining six to seven verses. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, God did, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel will see the face of Moses, and the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses will put a veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him, meaning God. As Moses descends the mountain, this time, however, he's not greeted with the sound of singing. Instead, the people are afraid. Why? Moses' face has become radiant. And there are two reasons why Moses' face shines. Firstly, Moses is God's chosen mediator. The lack of respect the people had towards him in Exodus 32 will not be repeated. Although the reason why Moses' face shines is not made explicit in the text, it's probably to impress, to let people know that God's authority rests on Moses. Thus, the people's response is appropriate. Fear. Only after Moses assured the leaders there's nothing to fear, then the people come near and hear him speak. We see this in verse 31 and 32. And receive all the instructions from God. A little fear is good for them. They must learn fear in the presence of a holy God. The second reason is that the glory presence of God met with Moses. How is Moses' face radiant? Moses' glow is an afterglow from being in God's presence. Moses reflected the glory of God. You know, Moses covered his face with the veil in the presence of the people after he enters the Lord's presence, we see in verse 34. God is present with his people through Moses. The veil is not needed when he speaks with God, but when he speaks to the people, Moses' radiant face caused the same fearful reaction. We see here that God keeps his promises to be present with his people. And we see that Moses' prayer in this session had been completely answered. In Exodus 35, the chapter after this, the account after this, it continues with the construction of the tabernacle as God originally instructed. The people are totally restored. The covenant is renewed. Forgiveness is complete. There's a spiritual lesson in this. We do not glorify God by looking at ourselves, but by looking at Him. You know, it's so easy to get trapped by a performance-based approach to the Christian life in which we always look at ourselves to see how we are doing spiritually. You know, it's also easy to waste time worrying about what we look like to others in the church. Instead, we should be looking to Jesus. Only then we can reflect His glory to others. As we look to God, we are transformed by God's splendor. 
And then when people look at us, they see God's glory shining through us, reflected off us. To shine like this, we need to spend time alone with God. It was true for Moses. He was only radiant when he had been with God. Eventually, the glory faded. To shine, Moses needed repeated exposure to the divine radiance of God. This is true for us. If we are not meeting God, His glory in us will deem. To reflect God well, it means participating in public worship together, including the ordinances. It means reading the Bible and meeting with God through prayer. Anyone who does this thing by faith in Christ will shine in the light of God. When we see people who radiate the love of God, we can tell that they've been with God in a place of meeting. Beloved, are you shining bright for Jesus? Do you radiate His love, compassion, and grace? By being with Jesus, we become like Him. And the more we are with Him, the more like Him we become. The last thing we see in Moses' face is the glory of the gospel. To see this, we need to turn to the New Testament and the passage which was read for us near the start of the service. This is where the Apostle Paul offers a surprising interpretation of Exodus. To the Corinthians, he writes in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 to 11. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of his glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns man is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Here the apostle compares the law of Moses with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, there was something glorious about the law. The Israelites could see this in Moses' face, shining so brightly they could hardly bear to look at it. However, the law could not bring full and final salvation. Thus, whatever radiance it had was fading away. Its glory was true, but temporary. How much more glorious it is, beloved, than is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of the good news of eternal salvation through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His death on the cross and His triumph over death. This good news is, the, is that the ministry of God's Spirit who indwells us by faith who alone can give us faith in Christ. This is fulfilled in Christ. And this makes the, glorious, the gospel even more glorious because through the gospel, the Holy Spirit does a glorious work, does a transforming work in our lives, changing our hearts and minds from the inside out so that we worship Christ alone. Beloved, it's my prayer that as I'm away for the next six months serving in Baptist Church, that we never, ever lose the awe and wonder of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. 
And God has shown His mercy, grace, patience, steadfast love, and faithfulness to us in Christ Jesus, forgiving our iniquity, transgression, and sin through the cross of Christ. Never lose the awe and wonder of this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray.